Hi, so this is Stu Holiday, and this is the Focus Mind podcast. With me today is Dr. Noel Brick. Noel is someone I've known on and off over the last few years, particularly around research I had to do last year, where he was part of the same research project called Resist. And Noel is renowned in our field for his expertise on attentional focus, which we'll be talking about today. But before I delve into how we can help you as endurance athletes what I'd really like Noel to do is give a brief introduction both to himself uh, his background in academia and probably a bit more importantly to what we're going to be talking about today his own athletic endurance experience so Noel Hi Sue and thank you thank you first of all for your very kind introduction and thanks for inviting me on as well it's it's, it's a pleasure to to have this conversation I know it'll be well hopefully something that we really enjoy just a little bit of background to, to me. So I suppose on the academic side, first of all, so I'm a lecturer in sport and exercise psychology and, and my research focuses on the psychology of endurance sports, mostly running, but it applies to cycling, triathlon, et cetera. And really what I'm interested in, if I was to kind of, you know, boil what I'm interested in down to, to one sentence, it's what athletes think about and how that helps their performance. And that's really been the focus of my research. And I think kind of twinned with that then, so I'm, I'm a runner myself. I, I mostly do longer distance events. So I've done a lot of ultras, marathons, et cetera. And for me, I think it's, you know, the, the research has run alongside my own uh, running kind of experience in that a lot of the things that I found as a runner that I've maybe struggled with, that I've found challenging or, you know, and so that might be, you know, from very simply how you deal with the, very thought of kind of doing a 100 mile race or whatever it might be how you deal with various challenges that you might encounter during an event like that or even you know if, it, if it's a 5k and even some training experiences I've had there's been lots of situations where I've kind of finished you know, a training run or a race or whatever and I thought oh that that's kind of curious there's a situation that I never encountered before and I didn't really know what to think or how to deal with it and so some of my studies then so it sort of feeds back into my research in that some of my studies have been informed by those experiences and then through the research I then try out some of those things in my own running to see how they work for me so so both kind of go hand in hand for me and just before we delve into the detail are you training for anything at the moment yeah so in october just passed i qualified for the boston marathon so boston is in april mm-hmm. we're currently what in time december you so i moved from 40 to 44 up to the 45 to 49 category which gave me an extra 10 minutes so that was 320 it had been 310 so in belfast i ran 312 so which, which kind of got me uncomfortably so at the minute i'm sort of yeah really starting to pick up my training again i'm doing a lot of kind of conditioning work etc at the minute and then the, the the volume will start to ramp up again in january I've been trying to qualify for Boston for a few years, so it was finally to, well, get over the qualifying line and hopefully get over the, the Boston line in April. It's fantastic. And uh, one of my previous guests, Peter Bromke, has uh, run Boston many, many times, and he he's a big fan of that race, and I'm sure he'll be interested to hear what you can bring to the table on the strategy side, because he's always out there learning like a lot of the people that I know listen into this. And the other thing which Noel's failed to go into the detail of, but is should be equally as proud as a BQT, is this year he has 
published with Runners World writer Scott Douglas, uh, the brilliant book, The Genius of Athletes. And I'm not just saying that to kiss ass. I actually have bought it and read it and I can critique it in a slightly different way to your average reader, having got my uh, research chops and uh, yeah, it, it stacks up. It's a, it's, a, it's a good read. And we'll be talking today a little bit about some elements of it. And Noel's done loads of publicity. If you want to check out other podcasts, he goes into some detail about various aspects of the book. And we really wanted today to kind of just do something slightly different. Um, we didn't want to go down the academic route and lose all the listeners. We've both got endurance experience and we both work with different athletes in different sports. And one of the things I love about the book and what Noel's intention with Scott was, is it's giving you strategies you can use for races, um, for performance, but also he describes it as also useful skills that if you use in training and races that you could use in life. And I think that sits really beautifully with my practice where as much as I want, you know, my clients to achieve their goal or, you know, get a time, it, it's helping them develop and grow as an individual. And maybe, you know, just as a nice starting point, what is without getting too academic what's your philosophy when you're working with athletes that goes down that path there no yeah I, I think that's you know kind of part of part of the approach first of all for, for the book when, when myself and Scott were writing this book are I suppose some key things that we wanted to one was so we obviously want to talk about some of these strategies um, that are useful both of us come from a running background and I suppose that was kind of our main focus but I think two things. One, we wanted to make those strategies really accessible. We didn't want to write an academic book about like this conversation. Um, we wanted it to be accessible, to be usable, understandable for, for anybody so they could pick up the book and, and you know, learn maybe about a, a strategy and then apply that to their own, you know, in one context, to their own sporting career if you like and, and to help their sporting performance maybe. But also in terms of life in general, I mean, it's, it's part of my philosophy of practice that you know, all these kind of techniques and skills that help people in their sporting lives, they help in, in our life outside of sport as well, whether it's, you know, dealing with pressure in, in work, whether it's self-care type strategies, whether it's having to do a presentation or a podcast interview or whatever, <laughs> you know, that you might experience a certain amount of anxiety about. The these strategies are useful in so many different contexts. And so I suppose what we tried to do in the book was present the strategy, give a little bit of the research about it, which, which uh, in, in, in one aspect came from the endurance uh, and sporting fields, but then also some of, the, some of the research hopefully explained in a user-friendly way about how they can then be applied to other areas of life as well. And, and I think kind of coming from an academic background, you always want the advice you're giving to be evidence-based. And that was an important thing for me in the book as well, that it wasn't just, you know, some kind of health self-help book that was pretty thin on the evidence. All the strategies that we have in there are, are backed up by a lot of research, both again, from a sporting perspective and a non-sporting perspective. Um, so hopefully it's things that are useful, easily accessible uh, and evidence-based that do work. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I can certainly vouch for that, both as what I've seen and read in the book, but also in terms of how I work as well. And that neatly leads us to starting to talk about one of the three areas that we're going to delve into today. And this isn't necessarily covered in a lot of depth in the book, but both Noel and I have got experience of this with clients we work with and we see as quite a big phenomenon. And that is a fear of failure and what others think and, and what I would generally group under a heading of 
basically competitor anxiety and that can appear with endurance athletes both in training with that evil comparison gremlin appearing where people are poring over other people's Strava records and worrying about what people have done or may even appear in training when people of similar standard are up against each other on the track and pushing each other and their technique goes out the window because they're thinking too much about being behind or what the runners or athletes are doing and then in races again having maybe worked really really hard in training and then come race day someone sees a competitor up ahead of them someone they may know or use as a reference point and then really being thrown by their performance and losing the focus on all that good work that they should have been doing in training and applying in their racecraft. So first of all, Noel, just maybe talk to that a little bit from your experience about how often you see this appear and like in what, in what guises it, it crops up. Yeah. So, so when we spoke about this before starting recording, I think it was something that we both realized that we had uh, worked with a lot of individuals with, with who had very similar experience. And, and, and even, you know, I can now kind of reflecting more and think of, of personal experiences as well, where, as you say, a number of things, I think it's kind of comparing ourselves with others and always from maybe a negative perspective of somebody else has done more, they've, they've trained more, they've, they've worked harder, they've, you know, all those kind of things, or even during performance, maybe sort of worrying to a certain extent, how I, looked to others so if i'm maybe in a technical sport i might sort of worry did my technique look flawless like that image of flawlessness that i might have in my mind what will other people think if they saw me perform and i felt that you know my my technique was poor or you know whatever it might be i think that's very common Uh, and i suppose you know there's so many things that maybe sort of underpin that i think one one thing is if i was to view this from so you can maybe view this from different lenses but Sometimes when we go into performances, we might go into to what's called or approach that performance in what's called a threat state. And this is where we, we maybe get very anxious, get very nervous about our performance. And, and what the research would show is that in a threat state, typically we perform more poorly. So our ability to, to control our thoughts is compromised when we're in that threat state. Even our physical performance is compromised when we're in that state. But I suppose the really interesting thing is what causes that? What, what, what things lead us into that sort of anxious uh, threatened state and you can probably sort of summarize this as in, in three main areas one is what we choose to focus on uh, and our perception of control in that situation so the question and, and athletes that i work with as soon as they hear me talk about this they will sort of think oh here he goes again he's talking about focus on the things that you can control but it is so so important about focusing on the things that we can control so so in those simple examples that we mentioned if I'm thinking about training that somebody else has done, that's not something I can control. That's something outside of my control, but it's very easy for me to focus on that and, and worry about that. I also can't control what other people think, how they judge my performance. Uh, so I might perform in the exact same way, but one person could view it as a brilliant performance, technically, let's say, and another person might see flaws. I, I can't control what other people think. And certainly by worrying about it, I'm probably more likely to perform less well if that's a good way to put it than, than i otherwise might so so that that that, that idea of control is, is so important in that situation and so the question then is whether 
I'm pre-performance, whether I'm during performance, what are the things that I have control over? So I can control maybe what I focus on, my thoughts, by you, and I'm sure we'll dig into this during the conversation, but by maybe sort of, you know, using some of the skills and strategies like self-talk maybe, or again, some of the attentional stuff that we'll come to later. If I maybe sort of use some of those strategies to focus on certain aspects of my performance that I can control, then I'm more likely to perform better. And again, if we sort of bring that right back to the, the starting point again, if I perform better, then I guess those things I might worry about, about what some other p- person thinks, well, they're more likely to think positively without me worrying about it. So, so that's a huge thing for me, focusing on what we can control. And, and again, so I've maybe just talked about during performance there. Pre-performance, I can control my own training. I can control my own preparation. I can take confidence from my own training and my own preparation. And even if I sort of think about it, my own training and my own preparation, I guess, you know, with with a good coach should be tailored for me or even with my own knowledge should be tailored for me. So while I might worry about somebody else doing higher volume than me, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that that's the right training for me. Uh, It also doesn't mean, by the way, that they're training correctly. They might be doing too much and getting injured. And here's me sitting, worrying about all the training that they're doing and, and thinking I should be doing more. So, so again, what can I control? I can control what I do, but I can also control where I place my attention and what I choose to focus on. And ultimately, I suppose the, the, the point of all that is giving myself the best possible chance to approach that competition in what's called a challenge state rather than a threat state, where I'm maybe confident, I'm excited about what I'm going to do, and, and I'm more likely to perform at my best rather than what I would be in a threat state. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you know, there's the, the words that we get banded around at the moment, kindness to self which often gets said but not actually acted upon, uh, ring, ring true there. People, almost every athlete I work with, you know, that they would use the word something like, oh, my harshest critic, or, you know, that they, they find flaws, they do a great race, but you go and talk to them afterwards and they're, you know, instead of saying, well done, and then you talk to them and they're like, yeah, but I could have gone quicker here or oh, I lost it there. And often it's just, you know, I don't know about you, but I find however good the athlete is it doesn't really matter what level they're at I'll still hear that when you when you sometimes go and congratulate someone unless they've kind of done in their mind their flawless race yeah it's, it's interesting I think there's so rabbit hole few rabbit holes that we sort of go down in, in that conversation w- one thing that comes to mind straight away is well I suppose a few things but, but but one thing is okay even that sort of thought sometimes that can be useful I mean sometimes I guess if it's something that we feel okay I didn't perform that well you know, it didn't perform, you know, I could have gone faster at a certain part of the race or whatever. So, okay, does that reflect maybe something about my preparation or my tactics that I can learn from? If I'm just going to maybe criticize myself, then perhaps it's not that useful. But if I if I take that as something that I can learn from and improve, then, then that thought process is maybe useful in that way. One, one thing I find myself saying quite a lot with athletes is, you know, that point where you maybe have that conversation and even when somebody has maybe objectively performed really well, so they've, they've run a personal best time or whatever, but they're still really critical about themselves, regardless of, you know, what you might sort of probe in the conversation, it, it always comes back at, at criticism. One thing, one question I've, I very often ask myself or find myself asking an athlete at that point is, okay, very often part of that conversation is about their sometimes confidence being quite low as well. So maybe 20, a couple of things that don't go together in all conversations, but the question I always ask is, okay, even if you perform really, really well, and we've got evidence here, we've got your personal best time, you performed really, really well, but you're still very critical of yourself. How will your confidence grow 
if you're always going to be critical of yourself, even when you perform at your best. And, and I find just, just a question, you know, similar to that, it's always a point of, that's a good point, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it kind of just starts that little bit of doubt, I suppose. And, and sometimes when we're working in practice, really what we're trying to get is, is that sort of doubt in, our, in unhelpful thinking styles sometimes. Yeah. Um, and it creates that little bit of doubt that that way that I always think that sometimes might be helpful for me, but is maybe not always helpful for me. I started to create that doubt that maybe there's a different way sometimes of, of thinking, especially maybe after a performance like that. Yeah, so you're touching on kind of our deeper work that we do with athletes where superficially we might be helping them in particular sessions or about a particular race, but where our kind of hidden agenda that's not so hidden is about helping that person improve their thinking and maybe self-referential view along the way as kind of a byproduct. And, you know, I'll try and say that to people, you know, without sounding too kind of woo-woo, you know, this is about trying to help you as well as helping you, the performer. And one of the big areas where I, I'm always having to pick people up on is like that difference in their identity because they'll come to you because they so want a result and if sort of stacks everything on it, maybe they want a BQT or whatever and it's become the be all and end all. And you realize that it's giving them the drive, which is brilliant because that kind of makes sure they do the sessions and tick them off, but it's sort of tipped over into a, a really unhealthy or unhelpful way in which they're operating and they're kind of putting so much mental energy into it it's detrimental now to performance and a lot of my work feels like I'm unpicking some of it to kind of keep the best bits of that intact and lose the bits that are really trying to kind of they don't even they know it and they can see it but they can't quite cut out those negative aspects that are going to damage them so is that something you're also having to chip away at most of the time yeah absolutely I suppose both in in practice and, and in in my research as well so I'll use a term here which I promise I'll only use once <laughs> and that is metacognition and a lot mm. of my research has has been around this and what that basically refers to is is our ability to think about our thinking our awareness of our own thinking maybe even just awareness of, a, of how our own thinking can impact on how we think how we perform etc um, and so part of that that sort of questioning so in, so in my research uh, what I've kind of looked at is how uh, endurance athletes maybe sometimes plan their thoughts but also evaluate their thoughts after performance mm. and, and this is kind of part of, it's slightly different I guess the conversation we're having but this is kind of part of that kind of thinking about our thinking process it's being aware about our thoughts. It's being aware of what we say to ourselves. The phrase I sometimes use is being aware of the story that we tell ourselves. So again, even if I did a really good performance, the story I might tell myself is all about how poor it was and all these different aspects. Um, so it's being aware of that. And, and very often, just by asking those questions, you become more aware of, actually, I think I have those kind of thoughts all the time. I'm always hard on myself. I'm always critical of myself. I didn't realize how much I was doing that so so it's developing that awareness sometimes and being aware of something then I guess it becomes a little bit easier to start to, to challenge it or to, or to change thoughts especially as you say when, when they're not helpful if, if they're helpful great and if they're helping your performance and building your confidence and all those things kind of great but I think kind of part of the role is one to develop that awareness but more so developing awareness of 
within the person themselves, uh, but also then I suppose the skills and strategies are then how we can maybe start to change that process, change those thoughts. Uh, and that can be some of the stuff we've been talking about, or it can even just be mile 20 of a marathon. What, what myself talk, what I say to myself becomes look like, is that helpful? Is that unhelpful? How can I challenge that? How can I change that so that I'm, I can get the best out of my performance, even when I'm, I'm really tired and really struggling. So, so that, that thinking about our thinking part for me is, is so, so important. Yeah, and I try and help people I work with think about that a lot all the time. So it's front and center again, which brings it back to life skills as opposed to merely just sport and performance skills. And just as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about, you know, you, you hear so much of people criticizing social media, but it is a bear trap, which so many of athletes that I work with, they know what we're trying to say in terms of helping them with their thinking and metacognition. And they are aware of some of the more unhealthy aspects of social media, but that just amplifies this comparison chip on our shoulders that nearly all of us carry around. It's a fact of life. And when I'm working with people, I'm training them to realize that that's just normal and like we'll always be comparing against each other. And it's like building an override system to help them with the same metacognition. And I guess... As a byproduct of that, we come to the second thing I was wanting to talk about, which is confidence. And this, I mean, confidence is currency for um, people like me and you and our business and our work, uh, how we work with athletes. And you just said something there about how people are thinking about their thinking. And there's a great thing. It has been discussed a few times, but it's so game changer for me I did want to just stick on it just for a minute and that 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 aspect is when people are talking to themselves in competition and they're trying to motivate themselves mentally with what we would call in our trade self-talk in your world if you're an athlete listening in those random thoughts that your um, mind throws out whenever you're in a race or you're running or the, the voice in your head you have with you 24-7. And one of the things Noel's been really good at in his research and found out is how we use the difference between I and you in that motivational ability. So I'll briefly give more what I understand from it and one example of where it really helps. And then maybe if you could do a little bit of the science, I said we wouldn't get too sucked into it, but maybe just explain to people why it works for them and hopefully that'll help it stick with them. And in that, what we're trying to say is when you're running along or cycling hard or whatever and you, you, you're suffering, the way that Noel was describing their mile 20 of a marathon or what have you, you need to find some way of keeping yourself going. And you might say to yourself, oh, I can do this. I can do this. And that's quite a normal way in which a sports psychologist, motivational um, performance coach might talk to you about helping that metacognition rather than saying, I can't do this. I want to quit. Change that narrative to be something like I can do this. But what Noel's found in his work was that if you change the I to you, that can have a, an even more beneficial impact on your performance. So instead of saying, I can do this, if you change that to you can do this, um, it seems to have even better impacts on performance. And I'll give one small example of this um, on a really hard sportive I was doing, going up a very, very steep 13% climb. And without his advice or guidance, I found myself on the pedals, standing up, saying you can do this to the pedal strokes and it got me to the top of the climb and I thought that's one of those moments in life where I was really patting myself on the back as I got to the top <laughs> I didn't think I would but no how does 
changing what you're saying from I to you help any athlete in any endurance sport? What What's the science behind that? Yeah, so, so I should, should say at the start that this wasn't a study that I did. It, we, we, we did write about it in the book because I think it's a fascinating area of research. We sort of drew on studies that have been done. So it was a team at Bangor University that did a, a study with, with cyclists. And then there was a broad there was a broader area led by a researcher called Ethan Crowes, who's done a lot of work on, wrote, wrote a book recently called Chatter, and it does, has done a lot of work on self-talk. Again, those things that we kind of say to ourselves. So yeah, so as you said, Stu, it's, it, it's very simply kind of, kind of briefly describes some of the work that's been done here. So if you take that cycling study in Bangor, what they did was they had people do, I think it was two 10K cycles um, or three in total 10K cycles. One, just to kind of see, you know, their level of performance and then two others after that. And between the first and the second one, what they had people do was develop a series of, of those kind of self-talk statements. So it can be, if I give them all in the eye example, it could be, I can push through this, I can do this, all those kind of things. Very, very simple things is, you know, it's very, very simple technique that we're sort of using here. But in, in the second and third 10K cycles, what they had them do was either repeat those statements in the first person. So I can do this, I can push through this. Or in the third person, you can do this, you can push through this. And what they found was that the uh, people in the study cycled faster when they were repeating those statements in the you as opposed to the I self-talk condition. But it didn't feel any harder. And, what, and, and this has been shown in areas outside of endurance as well. So again, if, if, if we're given a presentation, for example, and I'm feeling really nervous, uh, again, I might just say to myself, come on, Noel, you, you can push through this. You can do this. You know, again, just talking to myself like, like somebody who's trying to encourage me would talk to me or like a coach would maybe talk mm-hmm. to me. And what they found was, and, and the reason that they suggest that this happens is that when we call ourselves by our, our, our own name or talk to ourselves as, as you we kind of create this distance, this psychological distance between us and what we're experiencing. So if you're cycling up a really steep climb and what you're experiencing is pain and torture and effort and all that sort of thing, we can completely immerse ourselves in that. So you can just wallow in the misery of all of that. And and that's not going to go very well. Or what they say is, in, in that research is we create this psychological distance between all those sensations we have uh, and us and, and, and ourselves. And that helps us manage our, our emotions and what we say to ourselves and all those kind of things in that situation. So yeah, I, it, we included this in the book because I just thought it was, when that study came out, it was so interesting. And uh, for, for me, when, when I read about the Bangor University study, it was kind of the first awareness I had of this idea of self-distancing and, and I versus you. And it's something like, you um, Stu that I've tried in my own running and my own training I guess it's hard to say in a in you know just an experiment of one that that is truly effective or not but it's certainly something that I think can be you know a subtle change in how we speak to ourselves can be something that that's sort of helpful for a lot of these kind of skills and strategies at a very specific time and I find those kind of self-talk statements like like you said are most useful it's not something we do all the time it's not something um if say for example in a 5k race 
even in the first K or the second K, it's not something you maybe need at that point. It's maybe the fourth K. And, and for me, that's the really hard one because it's still quite a way to go and you are struggling by that point. Mm -hmm. um, and that for me are the points where self-talk statements become most useful, where it's really effortful, really difficult, really unpleasant. And you need some strategy to try to maintain your performance through those difficult moments. Uh, and so that subtle change in I versus you can be something really useful at those points. Yeah, and I mean, just just to clarify, the I found out about that research years after I got up the um, Hard Not Pass, it's called, ah, okay. um, in uh, the Lake Districts, which if any, anyone's ever ridden up it, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think one of the things that that provokes in me in our conversation, we touched on it beforehand, was even when, you know, we've got all this knowledge and skills ourselves from all this research and what we do in the day job, we help train our athletes in terms of giving them these skills. And ultimately it's interesting that you described like desired outcome to be getting the athlete to imagine they've got a coach that they're using themselves and can use themselves without our help. I'm always saying, saying to my clients, I'm trying to put myself out of a job. I work with you, I train you up and then you get so good at this. I just disappear and you can do it all. Or you've got the repertoire that you can pull on when you need to. But I think the hardest thing is, helping people when they're under pressure in you know a race or a challenge situation when they know all this stuff but they're under the cosh so much that either it goes out of the window they forget it or they default to something else and i think there's a part of our work which is useful working with an athlete over time to see where they've said what they want to do in a race what they want to do in a performance and then like they know what they, they say they're going to do and then ultimately they don't actually implement it or half implement it we, we'd call that in our world adherence under pressure and i don't know now what what's your what's your thoughts on kind of helping athletes overcome when they've got all of this knowledge and they still don't actually manage to pull on the right thread at the right time I think there's a number of things. I think one is probably the most common one is kind of sometimes just assuming that once you learn about a strategy, let's say just what we've been speaking about, once you kind of learn about a strategy that, okay, I know that now and it will be there when I need it, but it doesn't work like that. And probably the first piece of advice is that these strategies should be practiced and, and they work best when they're practiced. It takes time to, to kind of change and to learn a, a strategy so that it's there when, when you need it. So even when you're not feeling under pressure or actually maybe slightly better way of saying that is even in your training, creating conditions similar to those you might experience in a competition when you're under pressure. And that might be if you're doing say 400 meter or 800 meter reps and you're getting to the, let's say 12th or 16th or 20th or whatever it might happen to be that you're putting yourself through. It, it's when, when you're fatigued, when you're, everything is screaming at you to slow down practicing these techniques at that point and it's kind of making it almost the default that this is what i say to myself whether the pressure is in training and i'm tired and i don't want to do any more reps or whether the pressure is in competition and somebody's chasing you down whatever it might be so that's kind of one thing i think a second thing and there's probably three things i'll say here but i think a second thing is kind of it's knowing that regardless of whether you have that strategy in your toolkit or not, it's knowing sometimes that the, the negative thoughts will always come. You know, those negative thoughts will happen. It, if we take, sir, a few examples, if, if you're running a marathon, it's unrealistic to think that you will hit mile 22 feeling 
great. You know, feeling like you're out in your Sunday morning jog. It's going to happen. You're going to feel tired. You're going to have negative thoughts. You're you're going to have thoughts about stopping all those kind of things. So it's not just having the strategy. It's expecting to use that strategy and knowing that those thoughts will come and having that strategy as a counter you know, to, to use in that situation. So, so that then sort of feeds into your planning and your preparation. And then the final little bit of t- to add on to that is, is a technique that we would call, or a tool, uh, technique we call, would call if-then planning. And it's sort of, you know, and in the research it's called an implementation intention, but an if-then plan is basically saying, okay, if at mile 22, say, if I feel like this, then I will say you can do this or whatever your strategy might be. And what, what the research has shown is that when we, when we make plans like that, we're more likely to act on those plans or we're more likely to remember to use that strategy when the situation comes. So this kind of goes right back to our, our mental planning, which is, you know, planning is, is one of those metacognitive skills that we talk, we spoke about. Uh, and so it's kind of planning, you know, so we would plan for a marathon. I would plan my nutrition. I would plan, you know, if I'm taking gels, for example, I would plan my pacing and I'd know what pace, if I wanted to get a Boston qualifier, I would know what pace I need to do. So we plan all these aspects, but why not also plan our, our mental strategies? Why not also plan what you're going to say to yourself in the first 5k 10k maybe more importantly the last 10k the last 5k uh, and so it just becomes part of your planning for the event like all those other aspects uh, uh, would be as well i'm I, i'm a huge advocate with all of my clients in all different realms have a mental plan so yeah. everyone's always very good at doing the practical plan planning their speech or their talk or their race and you know like how they're going to do it the tactics or the mechanics but very few people put together a mental plan to that they've practiced and rehearsed first and foremost, and then got there. And, you know, if we, if we put them under pressure to tell us what they're going to do at this stage, this stage, this stage of a race that they could go, Oh yeah, well, I've already worked this one out and I've tested it in my 20 mile practice run or whatever. So yeah, that's, even if you're not working with someone like Noel or myself, please, please, please take this the one thing away from this conversation, use something like Noel's book look at the things that resonate in there and just pick out cherry pick out what works for you test it in training and then have a mental plan even if it's just two one or two little things it's better than having no plan at all and and, and even just you know we, we we mentioned earlier about confidence and and a huge part of confidence is is preparation both physical mm. and, and mental preparation and I, I think through through the last few years of doing this research and, and really just just trying things out in my own training what, what i've also learned from that is having a mental plan just helps so much with your confidence it's not that you're it's not that you're naive that that you're not going to have those mental challenges those psychological challenges as the event goes on it's knowing you've got something in your in your kit bag to deal with it in your mm-hmm. mental kit bag to deal with that strategy um and through your training having that kind of you know evolved that kind of worked on that whatever the self-talk statement might be you know so maybe have a specific mantra that for me is is meaningful and it's motivational and so i've developed that through my training and it's there for when i need it in the race and and again that just gives confidence that you can get through those inevitable sometimes those sticky moments that'll come it's quite an interesting one because you you for for the readers of the book i'll uh, i'll save you a little bit of, of time here noel's recommended tools for confidence um that there's four key ones that get mentioned the first one is to and i've i've always been taught this when i was from when i first did my first ever marathon is to look keep a record of your training to be able to look back at and give yourself confidence um that's part one 
So you can see that you've ticked off all the sessions that you've you've got through your difficult, tough, either speed sessions or long runs or whatever it might be that you do in your training. One of the big things he also talks about is the use of imagery as much as possible. And we're going to come to that a little bit in our uh, conversation about attention and focus in a minute. One of the key tools is knowing that others of a similar standard are able to achieve what you're setting out for. And the fourth one is have a support crew around you. And that could be, you know, your mum on the end of the phone or people at a race or just people in general who on the journey have been there for you and champion you as an individual. Is that an accurate description of your key goals for confidence, Noel? Absolutely perfect. Yeah. And and that, that first one, as you were speaking, I was kind of reflecting a little bit. So about, about sort of preparation and, and kind of picking up on that mental and physical preparation that, that we spoke about. One thing that I always recommend now um, that and that I do in my own sort of practice as a runner rather than as a in, in psychology is keeping a diary and keeping a training log of that. But when I look back at my older diaries, my older diaries, and I'm not going to say how old they are, but they're from quite some time ago. They would just be a very, you know, just a description of the session. It would be like 16 by four at, you know, 85 seconds or whatever it might be, you know, so, something like that. Now there are more details. Now I'll add a little bit of detail. And, and that detail might be how I felt at the finish, you know, how, how I felt in the last one, what I was saying to myself to get myself through, you know, so, so okay, rep, tw- reps 12 to 14 or 10 to 14 were really tough, but I, I kept using my mantra. I maintain my pace, even though I found it really tough because I was thinking of quitting because I had so many to do. But the last two felt pretty okay because I knew I was nearly there. So, you know, it's, it's detail mm. like that. And the reason I sort of add that detail is, is it, it reminds me of, first of all, that psychological strategy that we were talking about. It reminds me that, my, you know, I might look back at those training diaries when I'm feeling really nervous before a race. I think, oh, I'm, I'm rubbish now compared to what I was four months ago when I was flying around that track. But if I haven't write, written it down, I forgot how much I struggled with that, but used my strategies to get through it. So it's a reminder of all those kind of good parts of my uh, training yes but also all those other aspects that I got through at that time so I kind of add a little bit of detail for the sessions that went really well again it's a little bit of detail you know but my you know in my training diary I might add a little bit of you know I'm getting fitter I'm getting stronger simple things like that that just help boost the confidence because this this is kind of the key purpose of all that when we when we're in that kind of pre-competition state sometime where we might be feeling really nervous you spoke about it right at the very start. And, and I'm thinking about all those other athletes and all the training they've done. And they're all so much better prepared than me. And, you know, I, I, I might as well quit now because I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish last. What I haven't done there is I haven't tied my confidence to my own preparation. I've focused on all these other things. And really that's for me, the, the goal of keeping a training diary and adding all these details to it, that I can look back and remind myself of all those kind of things and tie my confidence in the moment and my belief and my ability to say, run a Boston time for me to the training and preparation that I've done and all the undisputable evidence that I have that I am fully prepared uh, and in the best possible state to, to do what I want to do in that event. So, so that's, that for me is key. And that's the key purpose of that is, is tying my confidence to my own preparation. And, and that kind of helps as a bit of a barrier to all those other thoughts that, that we might have sometimes. And of course, that neatly ties back to the control element that you're in control of both your performance you've had through the 16 weeks of training and your control of your 
reminder to yourself on the day of all their great work and and topping up that what I call the confidence as currency so like I always get my athletes to look at it like a bank account and if you're smart every time you're doing a session you're throwing a bit of money into that bank account so by the time you come to race day you've got tons of quids in there to be able to get you through 26 or in Noel's case about 46 miles depending on what level (laughs) of crazy you're going to that day one of the things which we've said right back at the beginning as well i touched on here in terms of all those tools in in the in the words in the use of imagery comes to the third part of today's conversation around attention and focus Noel's sweet spot so he said that his main area of interest was around what do athletes think when they're participating in events you know he wants to get under under the bonnet and find out what that was all about he spent 20 odd years doing this now and we we talked a bit before this broadcast about some of that and maybe we haven't talked much about imagery so maybe talk if you can a wee bit Noel about the tuning in and tuning out and then how you could use imagery in in that if you're an athlete listening in and thinking okay and I'm a focus is important but how can I train that Okay, so so we'll talk, we'll talk a bit about the attentional focus uh, first of all, and this, as I sort of mentioned, as you mentioned as well, Stu, this was my PhD research was all about really what what athletes, what runners, what endurance athletes, uh, what what they focus on and how that helps their performance. And you can sort of broadly all the different strategies you can sort of broadly boil them down to either tuning in or tuning out. But as ever, it's a little bit more than that. So we'll, we'll sort of go into each one. So so if we take tuning out first, first of all. Really, the you know tuning out strategies are really just strategies that you use to distract yourself from from what you might be experiencing at that time. So it might be distraction if you're doing an, an easy long run, and it's it's maybe you know using music, it's going with a running partner and just having a conversation, it's focusing on the scenery around you, whatever it might be to kind of tune out when, what you're from what you're actually physically doing. Tuning in strategies, there's probably a little bit more to to talk about in these, but broadly when we tune in. We maybe focus a little bit more on how we're feeling. So just checking out, you know, your level of effort and how that feels, your breathing and what that's like, how your legs feel, how your shoulders feel, maybe all those those kind of various things. For, for me, a lot of it is, is my hands because w- w- when I start a fatigue and when I start to push the pace a little bit, I clench, I, I clench my fist, my arms tighten. And for me, that that's kind yep. of one of the key, the key things that I check is, are my hands relaxed? Yep, um, <laughs> So, so tuning in is kind of checking those things. And this is the key thing for me. A lot of times, especially if we go back to the Martin scenario uh, where things are really tough, those kind of sensations tend to overwhelm. So it's it's hard, it's effortful, it's unpleasant, all those kind of things. Uh, and even for beginner runners, you know, feeling really out of breath and, and that can feel horrible sometimes. So some, sometimes it's not that we tune into those things, it's that they just dominate and, and we can't but pay attention to them. But, but for, for maybe more experienced athletes, the, the advantage of kind of checking in sometimes and, and tuning in sometimes is that a lot of these kind of sensations give us very important information. So for me, my hands, you know, kind of tell me, okay, I'm, 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 I'm clenching up here. I'm tightening up here. I need to relax a little bit because if I relax, I should be a little bit more efficient and a little bit more economical. So it gives me information that helps maybe my, my stride or my technique or my form, you know, whatever you might call it. Similarly with breathing. 
again, by checking my breathing, it's not that I distract and completely ignore it all the time. Sometimes I check in and that gives me really important information. So again, if it's a marathon or an ultra and I'm breathing a little bit too hard, well, that tells me I'm, I might just be going a little bit too fast because there's, there's, there's so far to go. And so again, it gives me information that can, can help with my pacing. And, and that's probably leaning to the research here a little bit that's probably one of the mistakes that beginners often make is going too hard at the start uh, be it a marathon 5k whatever it might be and, and kind of just blowing up towards the finish so especially in the early stages tuning in and just kind of checking not all the time but but just you know a, a check every now and then just to see how those things are if everything's fine great if not then you know might use it to adjust my pacing or, or whatever it might be so, so that's kind of broadly tuning in and, and tuning out but tuning in really links with a lot of the strategies that we might be talking about so i'm really tired maybe now is time i start using my you can do this you can push through this you know strategy or, or whatever probably the last thing to say in that and then we'll, we'll chat a bit about imagery one thing i've sort of found a lot in my research especially it was a study we did a few years ago with elite um you know olympic level world championship level runners where we asked them you know broadly my question was what do you think about you know when, mm. when you're running and one, one sort of really interesting thing we learned there was that how strategic these athletes were with these different strategies to the point where you know if we go to the tuning out one you might sort of think especially in a race very often tuning out is not a good thing if you get distracted that's not a good thing and and you know normally especially maybe in shorter races you try to avoid that and so a couple of athletes spoke about having a specific strategy if they got distracted they would do x y or z and very often x y and z might be something like counting so mm. uh two athletes spoke about if they found that they lost their focus for a second it was you know, counting their steps, counting their rhythm, just to tune back into to what they were actually doing. But other other runners spoke about deliberately using distraction, and it was especially on those easier long runs, which can be really boring and monotonous, and kind of something, especially for marathon training, something you have to do. So what they would speak about was maybe getting up to whatever pace was required for that session, but then just letting their mind go wherever. So it was very deliberate use of of distraction to help them through you know, events that might be, or training that might be boring or, or whatever it might be. So that was probably a key thing I learned about the elite athletes in that study was how strategic and deliberate they were about the strategies they used. And when we dug into that a bit more and asked, okay, have, have you always, is that something that you just did from the first time that, that you ran? This is the whole metacognitive bit. It was, okay, they planned these strategies, but earlier in their career, they also evaluated what worked for them, what didn't work. Uh, and maybe that was by themselves or, or sometimes it was with a coach. Um, so they might have had a race that went really poorly, but rather than just beating themselves up about that, kind of like we, we spoke about at the very start, or this kind of thing where it was just a bad event and, and move on and forget about it, it was actually very reflective and, and they would evaluate that and, okay, what could I have done better? Uh, in that sticky point, could I have you know, spoken to myself a bit better? Did I lose focus? And is there something I could do if that happened again? And so they built up those range of strategies through that reflective process that would help them plan then for, for, for a later event. So, so that kind of brings us back to all that, that sort of thinking about your thinking stuff and how that's important for learning what to do. And, and going back to your question as well, Stu, about reminding yourself of what to do in those kind of moments where you might encounter those tough situations in a race and forget to use your strategy. That that kind of process is really helpful to make sure that you've you, you've kind of even mentally practiced sometimes what you might do if that situation was to arise again. And that probably brings us back to the imagery stuff then mm. about how 
you know, you can kind of use imagery as part of that process of, okay, if I was back, it's just one way you can use it. But if I was back in that situation again, where I really struggled getting up that hill and my, my, my self-talk was really negative, what I was saying to myself was, you're rubbish, you can't do this, you, you should give up. Now, all those kind of things that go through everybody's mind. I might use imagery to put myself back in that situation. And I might use imagery to, to you know, try different strategies, practice different things. What would I do differently if I was to encounter that situation again? So even that imagery is kind of a thinking about my thinking process or can be a thinking about my thinking process to help prepare me for that situation again. Yeah. And I'm, I've, I've, I use this a lot with people who struggle with hills. Um, one of my athletes very recently wanted help with it. And we just came up with a um, very simple strategy about a few key cues, getting them to look towards the top of the hill one thing we tried was because arm movement helps so much going uphill that we just imagined that they had a rope that they were pulling through their hands and they were seeing that both in their training and then they used it in the race. And another one was about being light on your feet and just trying to get quick turnover. So looking up, moving the feet, moving the hands. And if you think about it, if you're doing that and you've practiced and rehearsed it, you haven't got a lot of time or space to think about all that negative self beating up so if if you're an athlete hearing this and you're thinking i hate hills in races cross country or whatever that might be something that you can try in your training and this is the point noel and i are making that he just said about the elites they're good and they're elite because they've been doing and practicing and refining these mental skills on top of all that physicality they've got you might look at them and think they look like specimens and they are but they're good because they train their brain as much as their body. So that's one thing to think about. And well, just as you were saying about getting athletes to use imagery to help with knowing when to tune in and tune out, one of the one of the tools, which is a very simple one for people to get started with, is effectively what Noel's saying is there's points where you really need to focus in, focus on what you're doing, focus on your process, focus on your stride, focus on everything. Those are the times we need you to switch off to relax that mind, let the legs and the arms turn over. And you could just think about this in the most simple way. You could either switch on, think about turning on a light switch or switch off. And the danger with switching off, you turn that light switch off is you switch off and you lose pace, you lose rhythm. And so we're saying, just be careful. Switching off doesn't mean letting the mind wander onto what you're doing next week, but just relaxing the mind that little bit more whilst you're working hard. Because if you think switch on all the time through a race even a 5k you're probably going to find it mentally taxing <laughs> we don't want you to overcook so that that might lead us nicely to uh, the one thing i wanted to just check with you uh, and one of noel's favorite things in the world uh, chunking so explain to uh, a naive listener what chunking is noel yeah so so chunking really very very simply is kind of mentally breaking a longer task or a longer challenge into kind of smaller and more I, when I'm describing this, I always get an image of a chocolate bar in my mind. So you've got this <laughs> big chocolate bar. We'll, we'll, we'll call it a challenge to eat all that chocolate bar, but it's in all those little squares. So bite-sized sort of squares that you can you can sort of break down and, and have one at a time. Mm. And mentally doing doing that with 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 a 5K, with a marathon, it doesn't really matter any, even a 400 meter rep, breaking it down into smaller kind of chunks and more manageable kind of chunks. I suppose, yeah, you know, this this is one strategy where I find even just in my own running, just something that's so helpful and so useful, especially for those longer events that, you know, there's another quote that came from that elite study um, where 
a marathoner who competed at the Olympics. And, and again, a lot of people might think, well, an Olympic marathoner, it's, it, it's easy for them to do these events. Absolutely not. She, she spoke about standing at the start line and uh, her, her quote was that if you stand at the start line of a marathon and think I've got 26.2 miles to run, you'd go crazy. You'd, you'd just turn around and go home. Um, and so she spoke about just getting to the first five, just, you know, get to the first five miles and then, you know, and then break it down. So when I've got the five miles, okay, I'm halfway to 10. And, you know, once I hit eight, sure, I'm nearly there. I'm nearly at 10. Once you get to 10, you're almost at a half marathon. It's just kind of breaking it down that way. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're kind of talking, the, 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 there's a race I did a few years ago uh, in Whitby. Um, and it was a 52-mile race. It was called the Frostbit 50, but it was a 52-mile race. Um, and it was supposed to be out into the moors, 26 miles out, and then uh, back in again. But when we arrived the night before, uh, it was a really bad snowstorm. And so we couldn't go onto the, the higher ground. So the event became 13 out, 13 back, 13 out, 13 back. And it was mentally, not physically, but mentally, it was the one of the easiest ultras I've ever done because it was automatically chunked for me into, okay, four half marathons. That's not so bad. You know, I, I can do that. Um, and even Goodness through sake. the process... <laughs> <laughs> and, and through through the run then so so the first time going out it was the first time i'd ever been on that course so i kind of learned in my memory there, there was kind of a number of there was a section where there was a number of styles there was then you sort of went up steps and it kind of started the, the climb up towards the mountain and so even that 13 mile as i learned the route on the way out became chunked into okay i'll just get to those steps you know and it's downhill to those steps and then when i get to those steps okay i'll, I'll get to the styles next and so it was just breaking the event down that way and i was probably you know reflecting i think that was maybe about seven years ago reflecting on that race i i kind of the reflection was okay the way the event changed helped me to chunk but chunking made it really easy for me therefore chunking is a good strategy that i should use regardless of how the event is set up mm-hmm. uh, and so that's kind of one of the strategies i use now and even if it's going up the, the hill that we sort of spoke about my two main strategies are, are chunking and self-talk going up a hill and it's sort of breaking it down to get to that tree or get to that you know whatever the marker might be and i just focus on on, on getting to that uh, and then the self-talk you know there's two two kind of mantras that i use uh, or two two parts of, of what I say to myself. One is the mantra, and the mantra is that every uphill has a downhill, and mm. and and or if it's a headwind, every headwind has a tailwind. It doesn't always happen that way. You mm. sort of get to the top of the hill and you realize it's flat all the rest of the way, so you haven't got it. But it gets you up the hill, and that's that's the key bit. Um, and then the second part is, uh, which links with the chunky, is when you reach one of those milestones. So when you reach the the tree or the steps or whatever it might be you kind of give yourself a little reward. It's like, oh, well done. I didn't think I could get here, but I've got to here. Now I've just got this next little bit to go. And that's just to the next marker. Maybe not the top of the hill, but just the next marker. So so the chunking helps with the self-talk and the strategies kind of feed into each other as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but yeah, it's, it's probably for me kind of came from that event where I learned how useful it can be. And then I've sort of taken it, for me personally, taken it from there to, to any other events. But, but probably just a, a little bit to finish with that. You know, it's kind of something that uh, it's a strategy that I use now, even with athletes outside of endurance type activities, you know, team sport athletes or whatever, the same principle applies. It's, it's kind of, if you just kind of think of like one 45 minute half or 30 minute half, whatever the sport might be, that's a long time. 
and and breaking it right down to you know sometimes minute by minute by minute or play by play by play it's the same strategy really and i guess what it helps you do is stay in the moment stay focused in that moment deal with whatever you have to deal with in that moment uh, and then when the next moment comes repeat you'll you'll do that again and if you do that enough times you'll eventually get to the finishing line and that's really i suppose the, the key benefit of that strategy brilliant and then i was i was about to ask you um and we'll see where it goes but it sounds like it's been such a, a huge benefit to your life it might be the answer to this question but i always ask guests what from all the experience you've had whether on in the sport or out the sport uh, is the lesson you've learned most in life what would be the noel brick lesson that you've learned most from all of this combined wow <laughs> activity it's a deep question um you're a psychologist <laughs> it's kind of part of the course <laughs> very reflective I, th- to, I think for me too, and it's not, it's so, so those are strategies that I use and I probably underestimate how helpful they are for me now because, you know, they're just strategies you inside and outside of running. Mm-hmm. For me, I'll go right back to the very first one about focusing on things you can control. Um, I said it when we were talking earlier that, you know, if there's any athletes I work with, listen to the, this, they'll, they'll just go, oh, here he goes again. He's talking about, you know, but for me, it is so important to deal with so many situations because naturally my mind tends to go to those things we can't control and, and that creates anxiety. So that's one for me. And it's something that I try to do all the time. It's like when I find myself worrying about things in my life, uh, I eventually come to a point where where I remind myself, can I really control this? If I can, then then the solution becomes a bit easier. It's about doing something about it. If I can't, it sometimes then becomes, okay, well, it's, it's maybe accepting or letting go to a certain extent. So maybe other strategies come, come in there. But it usually is something that just helps me focus on a solution or focusing focus on you know a, a solution to that situation. Probably another strategy that I work a lot on that we really haven't spoken about and, and I'll just tr- throw in here is working to reappraise situations it's kind of that idea of i'm going to completely mess up this quote now but it's it's nothing nothing is either good or bad but thinking makes it so Mm. and throw a bit of shakespeare in here Mm. um but it's that that sort of idea of um how we appraise this situation changes its meaning and for me it's kind of the you know the thoughts that we have about a situation are so important a situation very often a hill just is it's, it's just a hill you, you sort of mentioned earlier on about you know a lot of people hate hills so it becomes a thing that you know if there's a race with hills in it it just changes the whole story that, that we tell ourselves so it's about how we reappraise that situation sometimes and so that's maybe you know influenced my mantra of every uphill has a downhill it's how i appraise that situation and actually that helps me sometimes get excited about hills because I start to think, oh, I'm going to have this like rest and recovery on, on the other side of this hill. Brilliant. Give me more hills. So, so that, uh, and that really helps, I suppose, in other areas of life as well, is that challenges and events and situations very often just are. It's, it's how it's the thoughts that we have and how we appraise that situation that gives it meaning that can change how we feel. And so it's, 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 it's being aware of our thoughts and sometimes reappraising and changing our thoughts to help us deal with, with those kind of situations. That, that's probably the other one for me that I find really helpful. As eloquent as Yates, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, brilliant. Okay, right. I, there's so much there. If, you, if you're into this stuff, please go and buy the book, The Genius of Athlete by Noel and Scott. 
I'm definitely going to be listening back to this and like just playing a few things through the filter of my mind and my training. And it just leads me to say to Noel, thanks so much for your time today and the work we've done previous. And um, I hope we get to do something in the near future together as well soon. I hope so, Stuart. I've really enjoyed this. Um, that, that time has flown by. So thank you for a brilliant conversation. And, and again, thank you for, for having me on. It's a pleasure. Okay. And if you are listening to the Focus Mind podcast, please rate or subscribe on the podcast platform of choice. If you want to hear more talks like this and ones previous with other endurance specialists like Ed Caesar, Peter Bromka and Steve Hobbs and other ones we've got lined up in the future. So for today, thanks a lot from Stu at the Focus Mind podcast. 